Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has 14 years of law enforcement analysis experience. She started as a criminal intelligence analyst with the Phoenix Police Department and then moved on to the Phoenix Fire Department. She holds a master's degree of art forensic psychology. She is the 2022 Analytic Product Award winner from Arizona Association of Crime Analysts from the great copper state of Arizona. Please welcome Jennifer Hill. Jennifer, how are we doing? I'm great. How are you? Excellent. It's, it was nice meeting you and talking to you yesterday during the prep call and fresh off that Super Bowl that they had in Arizona where you had a chance to do your thing with the Super Bowl. And so that's got to be pretty exciting. It was. It was It was very exciting. It was a great experience and collaboration with other analysts. All right. We'll get into that a little bit. Certainly want to talk about your transition from the police department to the fire department. A little bit of housekeeping before I get started here. We are going to have a call-in segment today. We are going to play favorite first job. So if you have a favorite first job, call in and tell us about your favorite first job. So, all right. With that being said, Jennifer, how did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? So it's actually interesting. When I first started my criminal justice degree, I wanted to be a crime scene investigator. And I just, the way the path went for me, the intelligence analyst field just kind of called out to me. I was a volunteer with Avondale Police Department. And obviously, as you can imagine, the volunteer pool is is a little bit older and just kind of people who are trying to get out of the house. So when I started volunteering with them, their crime analyst quit. And I was pretty much the only person that was available <laughs> who knew how to use a computer. So <laughs> that was that was how it all started for me with as a volunteer with Avondale PD. And then they hired the amazing Jesse Phillips as the crime analyst over there. And then I just kind of moved on to different aspects, but always from that point on stayed in the criminal intelligence analyst field. Yeah. Now, why did you choose to volunteer for the department in the first place? So I was going to school for criminal justice and I thought it would be a good idea to kind of get some exposure to to the different parts of the criminal justice field and they had a volunteer opportunity and the school I was going to didn't have an internship program, but mm -hmm. the department was awesome in that it it would let me go wherever I wanted to go to get that experience to see, you know, narrow down what part of criminal justice I wanted to get involved in. So I started in the the as covering for the crime analyst that had left and that was just doing crime stats and comp stat reports and different UCR stuff. And and then after they hired Jesse, I, I actually went into the sex offender unit and helped the detective over there. And it was crazy because she was like, you are so good at compiling large amounts of information. You know, you should really think about doing something like that. And so I started looking into it a little bit more and just kind of 
refining my skills as I moved through my criminal justice program and and crime analysis was was exactly what I wanted to do and I knew it at that point. So you never became an analyst there at Avondale. You just stayed as I was, as the I volunteer. I was never a paid employee, but I did volunteer there through my entire undergraduate degree program. That's still an impressive because what are you like 1920? <laughs> <that> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. So um I I do find it fascinating just looking at your resume here that you started out in ITT tech. Did you have aspirations to just get a two-year degree and then see where where the criminal justice field took you? Because obviously, I think a lot of people, if they're going to school, if they're going to college right away, if they're looking at a four-year degree and going that way. So I'm interested to see what your what your experience was with getting the associate's degree first. Right. So I wanted to see where the criminal justice program would take me. And as you can Mm -hmm. tell from my resume, I switched over to psychology because after working in the sex offender unit with that detective, I really was interested in criminology and the criminal mind and what made them tick. Obviously, the sex offender is a very complex type of offender that you're looking at, but I was interested in the so what she did was she assessed the risk level of the offenders based on the information that I compiled for her and I really loved that analysis of of the data and I I thought man I would really love to do like a court type of mental health assessment and things like that but the criminal behavior part of of psychology just just really called to me so I I switched from criminal justice to psychology and forensic psychology is the study of criminal behavior. So that's kind of how my my college degree program morphed. Hmm. And that's interesting. You concentration on treatment and and that aspect of it. How do you feel that the the master's degree, the study in psychology helped you later become an analyst? So I I can't say that that I use it like in my daily job, but there are a lot of times when I'm looking at this, this, the information that comes from an incident and I'm thinking to myself, what kind of person would want to do this? Is it, is it personal? Is it, is it a stranger danger kind of thing? Like what, what made that person tick to commit this crime? So I have used a lot of that psychology education, but I mean, realistically, you can take whatever path you want, and and those that educational experience will always be useful to you. Yeah, no, I, that is fascinating that that's your perspective too. Because I've talked about this a couple of times on the show now. Is this is this idea that analysts sometimes don't get beyond the data? Right? We get assigned a task, we create a report, we create products. They're all just different forms of data. And sometimes we don't have to stop and think about that each one of those dots on a map is a victim or each one of those dots on the map is a burglarized home. For you to to be thinking about this idea of of like, okay, what's going on? What's the thought process between both the suspect and victim as you're analyzing these, these crimes? Yeah, that's, and that's exactly what I do. Well, especially right now in my current position, I definitely use it more than I ever have 
before, but I think it's it's important to think about more than just the data, just exactly like you said. Mm-hmm. All right, so then you uh, finish volunteering at Avondale and then become the administrative assistant at Arizona Department of Public Safety. So at this point in time, had you decided that you wanted to be an analyst and took this administrative assistant role as a stepping stone to get to that goal, or were you still exploring other avenues? No, absolutely. I was planning my five-year goal when I when I applied for DPS. It was a, to get my foot in the door, and they just so happened to have a position open in their sex offender unit, and it was a primarily for compliance. So you basically verify the address of the sex offender annually, which is a state statute. And through that, I actually wound up helping the U.S. Marshal Task Force in locating absconded offenders just because I had that natural (laughs) desire to find people, even though my supervisor kept telling me we're only there to verify their address. It, It just didn't work like that for me. That's not how my brain was working. So after after I started helping the U.S. Marshal Task Force in locating absconded sex offenders, a uh, position came up as an IRS, uh, an intelligence research specialist, which is is the next stepping stone after the administrative assistant position, and and it was for the missing and exploited children clearinghouse manager, which is still looking for people. You're just not looking for sex offenders anymore. I looked for trafficked juveniles, runaways. I actually built the state database to house the historical information for missing and exploited children. So that was a great opportunity for me to kind of get my foot under me as far as what I can do with finding people and analysis and taking data. And and it and it really helped me to get into the criminal intelligence analyst position. Yeah, that is excellent. As I look at your resume, it just seems like that was the pathway for you, if, yeah. if that makes any sense. You're a volunteer and then huge opening opportunity comes up and then you become admin assistant, huge opportunity comes up there and then you move your way on to the IRS, like and, you and I've mentioned. been very, I've been very fortunate in in my career that these opportunities have presented themselves, and I feel like it's just kind of moved me along that career yeah. path that I've I've had in yeah. my head that I wanted to work towards. So, and it was yeah. great because that that position was housed at the ACTIC, which is the Arizona Counterterrorism Center. So I was able to get my feet wet with some terrorism related intelligence stuff. I got to work with a lot of agencies that that have a seat at the ACTIC and and that mm-hmm. was just a great great opportunity for me to kind of get get some exposure to actual intelligence analysts as I knew I was working my way to that position. Yeah, and just to de- when you get an opportunity to work at some of these centers or task force and it's multi-jurisdictional I mean, you get exposed to a variety of people working from a variety of agencies and the opportunities can really open up from there. Absolutely. So then you leave there and then you become a criminal intelligence analyst with the police department. Then, as you're going through this and you've got a couple of years under your belt with the 
the state there. Why did you transfer from the state there to Phoenix PD? So I was actually on the analyst list for both DPS and Phoenix PD. And I just thought the analyst position that Phoenix PD had advertised for was was intriguing to me because I've always been interested in the drug trafficking side of intelligence analysis. So the particular position that came open to Phoenix PD was a, it was a contract position, but it was assigned to the HIDA, which is the Arizona High Intensity Drug Trafficking Area. So mm-hmm. I was I was assigned to DEB, which is the Drug Enforcement Bureau at Phoenix PD, and they embedded me with the Commercial Narcotics Unit at Sky Harbor Airport. And when I read that job description and that I would be assisting with money laundering and drug trafficking cases, I I just thought that would be a great next step for my career and to get some different experience because, you know, DPS doesn't really their type of of caseload is different than a local agency. So Mm. I thought it would be a better career move for me to go to Phoenix PD. Yeah. Now, did you know anybody, the hiring manager or anybody from the police department or HIDA before you applied for the position? So the good part about working at the ACTIC was that they have a analytical unit in the watch center where I was. So I did get to expose myself to some of the the intelligence analysts and the supervisors over there so that when I applied for it, they kind of knew who I was and the type of work that I did before. And I think that 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 was a really great opportunity for me to set myself apart from the other applicants. Yeah. it wouldn't surprise me. It's it's almost like you're being spoken for, even though maybe they don't use that term anymore. That's why folks that ask me about how can they get in the field, I just said, get, a, get your foot in the door somewhere, doing something similar to what you did with your volunteer work and, and the assistant position. And then people that see what you do, how you do, how you conduct yourself, and that you can be an asset to the team like that they all talk they all you know people will check references and do all that and that i'm sure that's is do you believe that's what happened in your case i absolutely 100 percent. like i've never shied away from starting at the bottom of anything and working hard to show people you know what i have to offer and i'm always going above and beyond like even in any position I've had, I've never just stopped at the job that I was hired for. I've always tried to help other people, whether it be trying to educate them on something or just helping because I knew how to do it and they didn't. You know, I just don't really see any lines. And and that's never gotten me into trouble. I feel like it's only helped me progress through my through my career and meet a lot of people and get involved in a lot of different projects. And and I think mm-hmm. that's just exactly how I see my career progressing. Hmm. So you're here with the police department for two years. Looking back, what comes to mind when you think of those two years in the police department? Oh, they were so fun. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was a great unit that I worked with at the airport. They were really fun. I I learned that there is value into embedding yourself with the people that you're supporting. Uh, I sat in the office with them when they interdicted commercial passengers. 
I was there to say they're lying. That story doesn't make any sense. Here's <laughs> why. As they were interviewing them, I could pull up everything that they were saying and discredit it, which just gave so much to the to the investigation and what they were able to do while they had those people in front of them. So I know that you've had some callers say it before, but get out of your office embed yourself with the people you work with so that you, you can really help them and know how to help them because you're with them and you you can see what they need. So is it like a sample of some data that you would come up like if they're they're relying about where they were headed or where they were going or where they were from? I think that the primary thing for me when they would try to explain why they had large amounts of currency on them, it was mm -hmm. always that they were a business owner they were always buying a car. They were always like the, their explanation for why they had that money <laughs> was was always so easy for me to just look on the corporation commission and say, you you do not own a business or it is not, you know, it's not adding up. So I think that that, that was the primary quick way for me to look at something where you're not requesting phone information or dumping a phone or doing anything that takes time to get the the approval you're just open source searching i think their social media accounts total up for them uh -huh. you know if you're dealing drugs on your facebook page we're probably gonna <laughs> bring it up in the interview so you know yeah so as you're talking there i am envisioning i don't know if you saw the movie wolf of wall street where they're I, like I they're, uh, they're like taping the bags of cocaine <laughs> yep. to, the, to the people to try to get them that's probably like what's the like largest amount of drugs that you saw someone trying to get through an airport you know for me i think it was it was the extremely creative ways that they tried to hide the drugs yeah. so they would peel apart the inside of the luggage and and remold the the inside of the suitcase to make it mm. look like, like they had never opened it and mm. and and it was just like an art for them and and yep. it was always entertaining for me to watch my detectives rip apart someone's suitcase <laughs> to get to the drugs it, it was it was quite entertaining and like do you know how long it took me to do that <laughs> Yeah, and obviously they didn't know it was there, right? Because yeah, that's yeah, yeah. that's always the the plausible deniability. I had no idea that that was there. I did somebody. I don't know how that got in there. Yeah, yeah. you had all that time to pre mold your suitcase. You had no idea it was in there. Yeah, we had when I was at the Washington Baltimore Haida. Another analyst that I worked closely with. She had a case where. She was working, the airport employees were buying tickets because they got a discount or got them free or whatever it is for different drug dealers. And, oh. but the way it was in the system, if you just looked at it in the system, it was just the employees. Mm -hmm. But then you, there was like a different way that you actually had to see that it was actually the actual passenger was, you know. The, the person that the employees were buying the tickets for. Yeah. And it turned absolutely. to be a whole whole different thing there that, that just, you know, access and trying to move product from one end of the country to the other. Yep. Yeah. Oh. There there was a lot of of different tricks of the trade to get people on flights and try to keep them, you know, below the radar, but it 
if you know your job and you know what you're looking for, then you'll find them. That's interesting. And I got to believe the airport has to be so interesting because you are dealing with so many people at so many different stress levels. And it's like that I, I worked at an amusement park, so I, I, I know what that chaos can be oh, like. Yeah. And it, I can only was, imagine. It, it was like a it was a, it was like an amusement park over there sometimes. And, you know, everybody is, seems to be a, their normal behavior seems to be a little off when they're at the airport just because so many people have anxiety from traveling. Mm-hmm. But I think some of my best stories were from the airport. Like they would chase people like just walk up to him like, hey, can I talk to you? And they would just take off. And it's like, <laughs> why is he running? And and there was an extremely large, tall man on my on my squad. And he, watching him after on the cameras, run through the airport. And the guy just basically ran into him like he was a wall and just <laughs> bam, right on the ground. It was quite the sight. Oh man. And see that's another thing too that I didn't I would that would be fun is that you have so many cameras inside yep. the airport oh, yeah. that you mm-hmm. almost can link them all together to see the play by play of the Absolutely. whole chase. That's exactly what we did. It was very eventful. Oh man. So that's that is interesting and that's just hmm. it's fascinating because they you know, obviously they the criminals still try to do it. And so it makes me wonder how often they get away with it. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure they can get away with it. It's just there's too many people to to mm-hmm. contact them all. You have to just pick and choose. Yeah. I mean, yeah. think about how many passengers there are in an airport in a day and how yeah. many of them are probably carrying something illegal. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think I've even didn't realize it until I got home that I had something in my bag. I think I had I had scissors the one time and I was like, oh, my gosh, I went through two different, you know, I went there and back and didn't realize until I got home that I had scissors in the bottom of my computer bag. Yeah, it it happens. Yeah. As I mentioned in your intro, you transition from Phoenix Police Department to the fire department. So I'm curious to see the the story behind this transition. Yeah. Well, so with the PD, like I mentioned before, it was a contract position. So I didn't, Mm -hmm. I didn't get all the benefits that a paid, that a city employee would get. So again, I used that position to get my foot in the door with the city of Phoenix. You have a lot more job opportunities available to you if you're already a city of Phoenix employee. And I got an email for a position that they created at the fire department. It's It was for a task force, an arson task force, criminal intelligence analyst. And I thought, well, what fun would that be to work <laughs> with fire and PD? Because everyone's always told me they don't get along very well. So that's got to be an entertaining work experience. So I, I interviewed for it. And lo and behold, they gave me the job. Excellent. Now, what was the interview like? Was it a mixture of firefighter and police officers in the interview? It was the the supervisor for the fire side of the task force and then mm-hmm. the Phoenix PD sergeant who who was in charge of the detectives for the police side of the task force mm-hmm. and someone else. I don't remember who it was, but it was the, basically the number ones for the fire and police side on the task force. And then I, I think they threw somebody else in there. I don't even remember who it was. Hmm. 
Now, was this a brand new position? So the task force isn't new, but they had reclassified an old position and kind of upgraded it to give it a little more responsibility and and to attract someone with that criminal intelligence background. So then let's get into some of your tasks, because I think it is unique in the country. There's not a lot of analysts at fire departments. I was when we were talking yesterday, I was trying I, I was thinking of somebody. I was like, I know I interviewed one person, Jessica LeBlanc from Virginia is also kind of made a similar transition that you did. But I'm curious your experience, like what kind of tasks are you asked to do? What was it like in the beginning as you transitioned from PD to this arson task force? So primarily I help the detectives with case support. So if there's any kind of suspect they have or a photo of a car, I'll exhaust my resources to try to help them find out who the suspect is to ID the person. Typically, I'll do like a workup on a suspect, bulletins. I got into a lot of mapping when I came over here. I wasn't a big GIS person before, but I've always loved maps. So Mm -hmm. the great thing about the fire department is they're just so, oh, you want to do that? Go ahead, take the class. We'll get you the software. What do you need? Tell us what you need to do your job and we'll get it for you. So they're so supportive over here and and it just makes it so much more fun to to learn and do my job because they really I, they're like oh you want ArcGIS all right let's get it for you and next day i had it and i was working on hotspot maps and and map and flyer activity and and working on reports and monthly reports for the chain of command on both fire and pd to kind of get the word out there more about the task force and what they were doing, because that wasn't really being done before. And I think mm-hmm. they've they've had a lot more resources available to them, knowing, having people know that that they're here and this is the work they're doing. So, you know, I've, I've done some maps for operations, kind of show them like, hey, if you have fires in this area, we're looking for a suspect. We know it's a hot spot. If we had any leads, you know, I would give that information out to the detectives so that they could go try to find, you know, that that arsonist in that area. So it was really good because I was able to kind of create my own area of this is what I'm going to provide. And then from there, I kind of did a needs assessment for the task force and for the fire department on you know, how can they better benefit from having me here? Because my personality isn't to stay inside the box. So (laughs) as soon as I got in here and I was like, all right, I got the task force thing down. Now what else can I do? And I started doing stats for different areas of the fire department that could benefit from from analysis and, and looking at you know, the cause and effect of how they change things. And and then from there, it was crazy because nobody realized how valuable fire data was until I came along and started sharing the fire data. And they're like, this is amazing. Like we could we could get funding for this now that we have this data to support why we need more positions or you know, why we need to do things a certain way. So I think it was it was good that they they brought someone on who had a variety of things in my background as far as analysis goes. So this way I, I could kind of create a better package for what we offer. You mentioned the certain data in order to get a grant. What's, what a good example of that, some data that you came up with that allowed them to either hire more or get a grant or get more funding. 
So I have a great example of the city of Phoenix has a program. It was a pilot program for gating alleys. It was, it's called GAP, G-A-P-P, gated alley program pilot. And the city was looking at different data sets and determining what alley segments should be gated to create a safer environment in the neighborhoods. And they had things like graffiti and dumping complaints and general crime in the area, but they couldn't narrow it down to the alley because of how they collect their information on the PD side. So when I came in here and I heard about that program, I'm like, well, we have a ton of fires in alleys. I feel like that should be a data set that they include. So I reached out to that program and I said, hey, I really think you guys would benefit from having fire data included in your weighted structure of how you determine what alley segments are going to have a gate installed. And, and they were like, wow, that's really great. Can you present us with some of your information so that we can see if it's useful or not? And the program that was a pilot before is now a permanent program. Nice. And and I think that the expanding the data set really helped to justify and, and show how effective gating the alleys was. And, and that fire data is really important because you have utilities that run through the, the alley segments and, you know, transients who are starting fires that are spreading to private property. You know, you're just victimizing a lot of people. So... I think that that was a great way that we used fire data where no one was really thinking about it like that before. No, that's great. Um, and with the arson task force, is there a threshold or how do cases get assigned to the task force? So the way the task force works is that if a fire captain on scene can determine what caused the fire, we don't get called because case closed, you know, was an electrical fire or someone accidentally you know, left the pot on the stove and, it, you know, stuff like that we don't get called for. But if the fire captain on scene can't determine what caused the fire, they'll call us to come out and do an origin and cause report, which is going to look into what, what are those ignition sources in the area? Can we narrow it? That's one side of it. The other side is if you have an obvious arson, there's surveillance video, witnesses, things that are telling them that someone set the fire intentionally, we're always called. And and if we aren't, for whatever reason, the police department has a program called Auto Assign that that patrol officer who responded to that fire can send that file over to us and say, hey, I think you guys need to look at this because I think it was arson. And then we'll give it to a detective to look at and and make that determination and see if, if further follow-up is warranted. Hmm. All right. And so I'm just curious, and there's just probably something I should have looked up before. With Phoenix, how many arsons do they have in an average year? So the thing about origin and cause analysis is in order to classify it as something, you have to rule out all the other ignition sources. So the number of arsons that we have that they would actually classify as arson are probably lower than what they actually are because you'd have to rule out so many other things and they're just, they're not, that's not what they do. So I would say we have a 15% arson rate for, for the calls that were dispatched on dispatched as in the task forces dispatched on. 
we look at probably five to 600 fire investigations a year. So I would say 10, 10 to 15% of those would be incendiary. Okay. And and because I think I, if I'm understanding you correctly, certainly there's going to be suspicious fires, for lack right. of a better word, and but they d haven't been certified as an as an arson to this point. Yeah, and and it could be that like so vehicle fires is a great example because everybody thinks if their car is on fire, someone had to have done it intentionally. But yeah. you know, there's electrical systems, there's you know gasoline, there's so many other things to the car. So yeah. you'd have to rule out that it didn't start under in the engine compartment or some other component of electrical throughout the car. Sometimes if they don't have a witness or some kind of video to show where the fire started and the car is just completely destroyed, it's it's possible that they would, would probably say it's just undetermined. You can't you just can't determine how that fire started. Yeah. It wasn't until I was in my twenties that I realized how many car fires that are on the highway. Yeah, I, yeah, and I had no idea then. Like, yeah, I mean, it seemed like it was once a week in the Baltimore, DC area that there was a car fire, at least and, once a week. And I, I, so I map, you know, a lot of fires that that we don't go on just because they're suspicious in nature. But I can tell you that from looking at the the car fires we have on the highway, trailers carrying landscaping debris have got to be. The most common fight because I think people just flick their cigarette butts out the window and then they fly uh -oh. into the debris in the landscaping trailer and poof, there you go, it's gone. Oh, hmm. interesting. So hmm. don't flick your cigarette butts, people. It's bad <laughs> yeah. for you. Bad for everybody. <laughs> yeah, another reason not to smoke, right? Exactly. <laughs> Hey y'all, it's Josie Blong from Salisbury Police Department. My public service announcement is that you are not as busy as you think you are. You just need better time management skills. My name is Rachel Sungaleski and here is my public service announcement. Being a law enforcement analyst by trade who's definitely worked in the open source intelligence world, one of the things that has always driven me crazy is the amount of oversharing our world does. So my public service announcement would be to keep your business to yourself. Stop telling the world everything about you on social media because it near about always comes back to bite you. Maintain a professional image at all times. That is my recommendation. This is Jennifer Loper. It's okay to fall apart sometimes. Tacos fall apart too, and we still love them. You talked about mapping, you talked about just studying all the data for the fire department. Is there either a metric that you've created or certain data that you've honed in and polished over the years that has really been helpful? Well, I think, you know, people don't realize how much they have on their social media accounts. Mm -hmm. I feel like that would be like having your family members and all the places you go posted publicly on your social media. I feel like the suspects that I have found, it was because their family members just put all of their business out there. And <laughs> it's like, oh, look, there you are in front of your car that I'm looking for. Hey, how you doing? So, you know, social media has, 
I don't particularly care for social media, but it is very beneficial when you are looking for someone mm-hmm. and, and their associates that, that you just poke around in their social media. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about a case then. This brings us to your analyst badge story. And for those that may be new to the show, the analyst badge story is the career defining case or project that an analyst works. And so for you, it's started in 2021 and finished in just this past year in 2022, but it deals with false reporting. Right. And and it actually wasn't even, Phoenix PD wasn't even the primary agency on this investigation. It was Tempe PD. But I, I stumbled across it because I was mapping fires and we just had a ton of fires, fire dispatches to a apartment complex in Phoenix where Every time they went out there, they'd say there was nothing found. And I'm like, well, that's not normal. Like, why are they getting all of these calls to this apartment complex and never finding anything? So I started digging in to, I started putting a timeline together of the calls. And the type of calls that they were, were ones that would elicit a large-scale response. So, like, a large number of fire trucks, PD. So I was like, man, this is a... This is a waste of resources. What's going on here? So I started looking at the phone numbers and I started looking at the addresses and then I started pulling data from fire and from PD. And I, I definitely, you know, found that it was a false caller that we were dealing with, but the number of calls, the volume was just incredible. And I said, how the heck is our alarm room able to keep up with actual emergencies in our city, a city as big as Phoenix, and not say something about this. So I reached out to the alarm room and they were like, oh yeah, you know, so they were really helpful with giving me the recordings to show it's the same person, even though they're calling from different numbers. And it was a 911 only phone number that he used, various ones. So it made it harder to track down who who the person actually was. But Mm -hmm. During the course of this research of mine, I found out Tempe PD was already already had a case open on the guy. So I was like, well, this is great. So the sergeant on the task force kept reminding me through this whole process that this is an arson task force. And why are we looking into a false caller? And I'm like, <laughs> listen, I would say 95% of the calls were happening in Phoenix. They only had a couple on the highway or in Tempe. I was like, this is a big chunk of their case. We need to give them this information because it's it's going to help them. So so he reached out to the detective, Brett Sauer and, at Tempe, and and we had a meeting with them. And, and I gave them my timeline and my workup and the waste of resources that we had going and, and all my stuff. And they were just like, this, this is great. So their their crime analyst, Vanessa Brewer, is the one who actually nominated me for that award because of of just the different aspects of it that I looked at besides for the volume of calls, like the duration that our resources were out of of service because they were responding to all of these fake calls. You know, they couldn't obviously respond to real emergencies because we had so many units tied up for for something that it wasn't even happening so it was a really good case it was fun to work and and i think i've had a couple of other timeline cases now where i realized (laughs) geez i guess i'm like the timeline person (laughs) (laughs) i do get fun so what do you what do you use for timelines i just use like powerpoint 
Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. Like just the regular word stuff, nothing fancy. But I've, I've kind of tied in surveillance video clips and 911 calls and some other media that kind of paints the picture for things that I think kind of sets it apart from just your standard, you know, list. Because the false call case for Tempe went on from like around May of 2021 through the end of December. So, I mean, you're talking about, you know, six, seven months of, of records to go through and, and it, and it, there was a large volume of stuff to go through. So it's not something you can just like line item on a Excel spreadsheet. Although I did do that too, but pictorially I'm, I'm a person who likes pictures. So timelines for me are really helpful. All right. So how often was these false calls coming in? So some of them would be five, five or six a day. And then, and then, and and then it would be, you know, sometimes, you know, one or two, but there was a point where there, a day didn't go by where he, he wasn't calling at least once a day, if not four or five times. Yeah. And so so he's, he's using these cell phones that don't have a plan that they're just, the only thing you can do with them when they're charged is make the 911 call. Right. And, and the dispatcher can't call back. So he would call and make these statements and then hang up. And there was no way for anybody to ask any other questions to get clarification on what was happening, which which is what led to the large scale response. So were you able to either forecast or get any kind of profile together based on his pattern of behavior or any information that you got from the data? Yeah, we definitely did some predictive analysis there. Time of day, day of week. There was a particular time of day where he would call, and then there were certain days that were definitely busier than others. But there was quite a bit of randomness to his calls as well, because he used several addresses. So while you could assume he was going to call in a particular apartment complex, you couldn't always guarantee it. So, but it wasn't an apartment complex that one of his family members lived in and, and not being an official psychiatrist or anything like that, but having that profiling interest, I could say he was just really interested in watching all of the fire and PD show up when he Hmm. called. Okay. So he would actually be on site when he made the calls. We suspect so, yeah. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, that that is interesting. And I have seen stories of arsonists and how they like to sit back and watch what they've created. So Yeah. yeah. And think. and and we've definitely had quite a few arsonists that that have done that have done that very same thing and just set it on fire and then they they somehow did try to figure out how to insert themselves into the investigation, thinking that we won't suspect that it was them if if they're trying to help or offering information or you know it's like you almost want to look at that person more because it's like why yeah. are you trying to be so helpful like yeah, they, actually, they got they got too close and got burnt how about that yeah that and <laughs> you know that that definitely happens we we don't have a whole lot of burn injuries that we respond to from our fire investigation scenes but i can't say it's never happened hmm. Right. So then how did you catch this guy? Well, I think it was it was a lot of, of stuff that I don't want to talk about because the case isn't officially closed. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> That's fair. But he has been arrested and the trial is upcoming. Correct. 
Yes. I got you. I got you. Hmm. All right. So I guess any additional takeaways that you have regarding this case? For this case, I think it's, you never know how big the case is going to become. You might think it's small, but always organize all of your data and all of your information as you're going through researching, because what I thought was going to be a very small checkbox, okay, we're done, turned out to be a seven-month-long, just large amounts of data. So never underestimate the size of what your case could be. Okay. This case got you the Analytical Product Award from the AACA. And so did you know you were winning that award? So they, the president called me to tell me that I should come to the award ceremony because I, I might be getting something, but he wouldn't tell me what the award was for or who nominated me for the award or anything like that. So and when you, when you say president, you're not talking the, about Joe Biden, right? No, I'm talking about <laughs> the, the president of the AACA. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. All right. So, yeah. So he, he just said, hey, you, it's in your best interest to show up to this event. Yeah, pretty much. And and if you could please bring someone with you to take a picture of you, that would be great as well. So you didn't even realize you were nominated or anything like that. No, was, I had uh, I had no idea anybody had nominated me. I and and I'm not super active in the analyst community where like people know me or anything. So I was actually mm-hmm. quite taken back that someone would nominate me for something. Yeah. Oh, it's a it's a good case. And as you mentioned, that you had a lot of interesting data to present and it worked out in the end. And I think it's something that you the tenacity of being able to put all that together. And you certainly uh, helped solve this case. Definitely. All right. Let's move on to the Super Bowl then, because as I mentioned in the beginning, you just got done with that. And that's always a big, crazy event for cities to handle is Super Bowl. And it's it's not most people think it's just one night, but it's not Super Bowl week. You have different festivities going on all week long. And so it's a it's a big strain on the law enforcement and fire to be, you know, all eyes are on you for a whole entire week. Oh, and it's it's crazy because the Super Bowl actually took place in Glendale, but Phoenix had a week of events leading up to the Super Bowl. And at the same time, you had the Waste Management Open in Scottsdale. So you had two major events in yeah. in the Valley within the same week. So it was very taxing on on all the law enforcement and and fire because of of just the increased volume of people and you know, gatherings and, and just stuff going on in general. All right. Hmm. Good. And then what were you tasked to do? So I was assigned to the Intelligence Operations Center, also known as the IOC, at the FBI building in Phoenix. And I worked with a group of analysts from the FBI and then some other state and local analysts. So it's their Everybody's just basically in a room and you're kind of assessing information as it comes in and, you know, determining, is it credible? Do we need to have follow-up? Do they have a nexus to Phoenix? You know, and just, it's lots of research and, 
And obviously, because Phoenix had so many events going on, the the threats to the city or whether or not they were warranted, they were still coming in. So you still have to look mm-hmm. at everything and just make sure everybody's going to be safe and do your due diligence to make sure you're you're looking at everything that comes in. Yeah, I, I think that's lost on the public in general, just how many threats a city gets, especially when they're hosting this an event like this. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, it's it's good that the I mean, I guess to a sense, it's good that the public isn't worried about it and they're getting out there and living their lives and enjoying the mm-hmm. festivities. But, you know, a lot of hard work goes on behind closed doors to make sure that everybody is safe, you know, with with law enforcement out there and fire responding to medical calls because people are dehydrated or whatever the case may be. You know, a lot of work goes in into the the events that that are planned for especially something as big as Phoenix. And then you have your your other incidents that aren't related to the festivities but happen in that footprint. And so you have to worry about those unintentional criminal acts that you're also responding to. Hmm. It was a busy week. I'm glad it's over. Yeah. So you mentioned there was a couple of different locations, because I guess I didn't think about that as well, that the actual Super Bowl was in Glendale, but Phoenix held different activities. They did. So yeah, they, they had the Super, they had the NFL experience at Hans Park. And then mm-hmm. the day of the Super Bowl, they had the NFL viewing experience in Hans Park. And then there was just all kinds of other events throughout Phoenix during the week. Then we had some guy who decided he was going to climb, free climb the Chase building. <laughs> that was sure. that was an entertaining and large scale response in itself. And and I was just sitting there minding my own business at the IOC, and and I had a few different federal agencies saying, "Hey, why why is there so many fire responding to the Chase building?" I'm like, I don't know. Let me look into it. And then, like, we turn on the TV, and this guy is just climbing up the outside of the building. No harness, no nothing. Live streaming it on his social media accounts. And I said, well, there there you go. That, that's why there's so many fire personnel at Chase Building. Oh, jeez. So he's just a thrill seeker? He, he was actually, he had, I don't remember the name of the, the cause that he was, he was climbing for, but he's, he's a well-known free climber mm-hmm. that supports this cause. I think it was something, I don't know if it was an anti-abortion or something, I, I'm pretty sure it was anti-abortion that he was just trying to bring awareness to. So I think he's done this in other states as well. Hmm. Well, I hope he has somebody that pays his fines. <laughs> Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Between that and the streaker who jumped in the lake at the waste management open. Oh, jeez. Yeah, know. I guess the underwear company paid for his bail because <laughs> that's all he was wearing when he jumped into the lake was a pair of underwear, and that company oh. decided to help him out of his legal problems. Oh, jeez. See, that's setting a bad precedent. <laughs> I, wonder if, I, I wonder if their sales went up at all, though. Uh, yeah. Possibly. I mean, if they did, they, they, I mean, good for him then if that's what really happened. But you're, <laughs> you know, to me, you're just asking people to do crazy stuff to get stuff paid for. But yep. Yeah, exactly. Bad idea. Uh, oh, geez. All right. Well, let's move on. Let's do the call in segment now. And this is favorite first jobs. The idea for this came to me from when I interviewed Steve Gottlieb and he was 17, 16, 17 years old, 
and his favorite first job was being a radio DJ for a Sunday morning show at his local hometown. And so I like to ask people what their favorite first job. And so I was, I was thinking about my one of my favorite first jobs. When I was in college, I, I delivered meals in a refrigerated to it was like a meals on wheels program it was okay. um, and meals delivered to children in need the radio didn't work in the truck so and of course this is before cell phones i had no i think on me it's just me and my thoughts as i'm delivering all this this food they basically told me like hey you grab some chocolate milk for yourself so it was just me as a little kid just driving this box truck around town drinking chocolate milk <laughs> <laughs> do you have a favorite first job oh my gosh the, i think the most memorable job i had was when i was 17 i worked at a bagel shop so i'm from new jersey mm-hmm. and you know bagels and delis and bakeries in new jersey are like the heartbeat people like they just need good food when I moved to Arizona I was really disappointed in in what my options were for food out here I almost (laughs) actually moved back to New Jersey but the bagel shop I worked at when I was 17 was such a fun group of teenagers and we were just we would just blast the music in the morning bake the bagels and then you know all day it was just you know cream cheese or butter Man, see, but Arizona is a big retirement community, so you probably could bring the the New Jersey bagel down there to Arizona and be a pretty good business. It could be, yeah. I there there is the bagel shops here are few and far between between, but I do have one by my house that that gives you that inch thick layer of cream cheese on your bagel, just <laughs> that authentic New Jersey, you know, carb it up, cream cheese it up enjoy your breakfast kind of deal man no that does sound good all right (laughs) all right the first on the line is beverly beverly what's one of your favorite first jobs i was a job coach for people with disabilities anything memorable from that just at the fact that i deeply admire people with disabilities they work harder and really try and dedicate themselves to their jobs maybe sometimes when other people take their jobs for granted. Yeah. So then I, you know, we just talked about jobs that were just really fun and in the service industry. And then Beverly comes along and has this really deep, very important first job where she's working with folks that are in need. That was super serious compared to where we just came from. Yeah. But <laughs> I, I think I, she has a good point, though. She I does. mean, would you, you get, you know, just like teaching or any kind of volunteer group or when you're working with a large group of of people, you know, if you get certain people that are just working hard and are dedicated to whatever they're trying to do, it is inspiring. Yeah, it is definitely. All right. All right. Let's move on to Shauna. Shauna, what's one of your favorite first jobs? One of my favorite first jobs was working as a cashier at a large grocery store. I loved the fact that I could come in, interact with a whole bunch of people and go home and not take any of it with me. And when I'm having a bad day in the office, I always think, ah, I'm going to go be a cashier again. That's how I get through my bed, is dreaming about being a cashier. (laughs) So I guess the grass is always greener on the other side, right? I don't know. I don't like people bagging my groceries. I prefer the self-checkout line. But, you know, it's it's good to see that 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 was a a favorable job for her. 
Yeah, no, it is it is fascinating because she seems very people person-y. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm she like, does. Oh. She has that perky tone in her voice. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, you know, I, I enjoy working from home and not talking to that many people. That's exactly <laughs> how I am. I, I prefer to not go into the office if I can help it because I like the comfort of my own living room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but it is, I mean, hey, you, you think back and it's the, the nostalgia factor, right? It's mm-hmm. uh, when you have those bad days in your career or life and you think back of a time that it was much simpler. Pre-COVID. Yeah, that's true too. <laughs> All right, let's move on to Barry. Barry, what's one of your favorite first jobs? Oh, without a doubt, my favorite job was as a navigator on a Navy destroyer. First off, to get this out of the way, I had very good people on that team. Any job you have when you've got good people backing you up, it's that much better. But the other thing was, this was in the late 70s, and we were just getting global positioning systems, what we now call GIS. So on any given workday, I was doing navigating the same way Columbus was doing it and the same way that folks are now doing it with their cell phones. And I just found that really fun. Yeah, that's a that's another awe-inspiring first job. I mean, absolutely. I I, I, I love GIS. I don't know that I would want to do it like Christopher Columbus did, though. <laughs> I don't. I mean, I belly ache on this show all the time about having to geocode and the cur- and the system failing and crashing and me wanting to throw oh, yeah. the whole computer out the oh, out yeah. the window. So let alone what he's talking about. He's talking about late seventies, which is before I was born. And yeah. so it's, oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, but it's still, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old on that naval ship. And again, working with a bunch of great people with like a common cause. Yeah, I think it's good when you have a good group of people that you work with. It just makes going to work so much more fun. Yeah, definitely. All right, then let's move on to Dawn. Dawn, what's one of your favorite first jobs? Definitely Tripoli Bakery. (laughs) I loved the cannolis there and would definitely get a few (laughs) in between my, my, during my breaks. So Tripoli Bakery, 100%. That's one thing, man. If my retirement job is at like a bakery or at something like that, I am gaining like 20 pounds. Yeah. Oh, no. Way more than 20. I have no control when it comes to cannolis, especially. So good. And to me, if you're working there and then you get either discount or free food, like, oh, man, all those pastries, it would it would not be good for me. So yeah. I guess I, when I was guess at the bagel shop there, it was just like free for all. You just bagels every day. Yeah, that's another, th- you know, that's another thing. Like I, the, so like Panera Bread, you know, they oh, give yeah. out at the end of every night, they give out their bread to homeless associations. Well, so, but good. there's that's always good. stuff left over, you know, at the end of the day, but I'm sure they, their employees get, get some stuff too. But yeah, that's all, that's all carbs. Mm -hmm. (laughs) all all goody carbs so all right last but certainly not least is jessica jessica what's one of your favorite first jobs so i worked at a dry cleaner in high school and when the clothes had been left there for more than 30 days we were allowed to take them if we paid the cleaning bill so i supplemented quite a bit of my robe with really cute finds from the dry cleaners only for a dollar because that's how much it costs to clean them that is a really good fringe benefit. <laughs> I'm thinking of picking up a part-time job at the dry cleaner right now. 
Yeah, I, but I'm is that surprised. A standard practice? Can I can I find out if that's a standard practice? Uh, yeah, just go. I call up a dry cleaner, right? That, they might not hire you if that's your first question. But, <laughs> but it's. But I'm actually kind of surprised that it was only 30 days. Yeah, that's that seems well, really they short. Have that, they have that on the slip, don't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. They there's something like that. Maybe it's not. Maybe it is 30. I'm. Just, it's they been a while. They start the clock as soon as you drop that stuff off. Yeah, so that is interesting. And to pay a dollar for that, just to, <laughs> just to say you got it. Hey, again, if you like fashion but can't afford the retail price, that is a good way to find yourself into a bunch of new clothes. Yeah, absolutely. All right, good. All right, so that's favorite first jobs. If you have a favorite first job that you want to share with us, email the show at leapodcasts at gmail.com. All right, finishing up, Jennifer, then with personal interests. And this makes me smile. You have mini donkeys. I do. I have three mini donkeys. And I bought them four four or five years ago. My husband and I live on a county island, so we we have an acre property. And and I said I'm getting farm animals if we get this house. And he's like I I just want the shop. I'm like all right. So <laughs> sure enough, I I started you know mingling with the neighbors and meeting people. And there was a family on the street next to us who had some mini donkeys. And she's like oh they're rescues and. I was like, we can rescue mini donkeys. And my husband's <laughs> like, no. And I'm like, no, you said I can have it. You can have, I can have farm animals. So yeah, we, we rescued two female adults from New Mexico and one of them was pregnant. So we have a mini baby donkey and two adult donkeys. Okay. So when you say mini, I'm trying to envision what, how big are mini donkeys? So the textbook definition of a mini donkey is 36 inches high or less. So if their back is 36 inches or less, they're a mini donkey. So mine would probably be right on the border of of, of being a mini donkey because they're they're pretty big. So it's not the height from the ground. Yeah, from the ground to the oh, to is? their back. Yeah. Oh, okay. So it is the height from the ground. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So there, yeah. So I have three feet. Yeah, that is that's like a, you know it's like a yeah. dog. You're a bigger dog. They're, yeah. They're very, yeah. De- yeah. Wait. Well, they're definitely bigger. So they mingle great with my dogs. I have three mm-hmm. dogs um, mm-hmm. and uh, they, they all get along great. They're just very sassy girls. You know, when they say do- donkeys are stubborn. Yes, they, they are very stubborn and, and they, mine are very sassy. They, they'll just yell right at you if you, right. if you try to tell them where to go. All right. So what's the advantages of having many donkeys? they make me happy so <laughs> there's really no it's kind of like your dog I mean what do they really do they, they make you happy they're yeah they're fun to watch when they're playing and they have personality differences between the three of them you know watching them run around the yard and and jump on each other and you know chase the dogs it's it's just entertaining and they you know, donkeys are actually right up there with horses for therapy animals. So they, they have that very gentle nature as well. So they can see, you know, they can sense when you're having a bad day and kind of snuggle up with you. So I don't really have a functional purpose other than that they make me happy. <laughs> nice. All right. So our last segment to the show is Words to the World. And this is where I give the guests the last word. Jennifer, you can promote any idea that you wish. 
what are your words to the world? I think don't be afraid to start at the bottom. Don't be afraid to go for something you might not quite know where it's going to lead. Some of the best adventures are ones that were unplanned. Very good. Well, I leave every guest with you. You've given me just enough to talk bad about you later. <laughs> but I do appreciate you being on the show, Jennifer. Thank you so much, and you be safe. Thanks. You too. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.